So you can tell a lot about a person by what they do with their privilege. Now, on the one hand, there are the, the Karens of the world. You know about Karens? A Karen is someone who uh, is entitled, kind of always whining, uh, ne never satisfied with the service that they're getting, always wanting to speak to the manager about something. That's a Karen. Doesn't mean that's you if your name is Karen. That's just the, the meme that's out there these days. I, one of the most famous recent examples of a, of a Karen uh, is, is that woman who uh, was walking her dog in Central Park and she called 911 on a black man who was bird watching. And he asked her to just put her dog on the leash. And she, she sat there and on tape, on film, lied about the situation to the operator, knowing that she could get away with it as a white woman. On the other hand, there are those people who are just wildly successful and then give back generously. I think, I couldn't name them all, but I think of all of the professional athletes, right? who have become incredibly rich, incredibly successful, and who spend a lot of their time and their money investing in disadvantaged kids in the communities where they play. Or, or, or you could think about somebody like a Bill Gates, and you may not think much of Bill Gates, but the reality is Bill Gates has actually given almost all of his wealth away, put it in a foundation that he now can't spend on himself. But all that money that he made is going to be is being spent on others. The, these, these people, they, they stand out. They are not Karens. They, they understand that maybe they, they won the genetic lottery as an athlete or were in the right place at the right time with the right idea and kind of got lucky like Bill Gates and made a lot of money. And, and that their success is not proof of their superiority, but is rather an obligation to generosity. These two different kinds of people stand out. Now, here's the thing. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be a Karen today. <laughs> but character shows what you do with your privilege will come out precisely when you're not thinking about it because it is driven by the character within. Christianity is centered around the most privileged person who has ever existed, Jesus. Now, I don't think of Jesus as privileged. Well, you should. Because he's God in the flesh. Heaven is his home. Universal dominion, his birthright. You can't imagine more privilege than that. But what did he do with it? Well, he's born in a barn to poor parents. A, a, 
a laborer, a carpenter by training, and an itinerant preacher as an adult who ended up crucified by the Romans as a common criminal. So poor that he had to be buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus gave up all of his privilege. And, and why? So that people like you and me, his followers, could become like him. Children of God. Heirs of the kingdom. What privilege Christians have been given. I don't know what you think about in terms of your, your, your own sense of privilege, but I'm, I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, you're not thinking enough about it. You have been given unfathomable privilege. But when you look at Christians, when you look at yourself, what do you see? Do you see Karen? Or do you see Christ? That's what we're going to think about this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, this is found on page 1071, James chapter 2. Uh, the big numbers on the page are chapter numbers. The small numbers are verse numbers. If you're not uh, accustomed to getting around in a Bible, uh, I'm going to be looking at the first 13 verses, and you'll be helped if you just leave your Bible open because I'm going to refer to these verses again and again. Let me just, as you're finding it, James chapter 2, verse 1 on page 1071, let me just remind you where we've gotten to. We've, we've finished the first chapter. James has introduced all of his main themes. His goal for the Christians that he's writing to is perseverance toward Christian maturity. And that maturity is going to show itself in our speech, in our obedience, and in our, our holiness, our love for God rather than the world. Ba basically, I've been arguing that, that what James wants us to understand is that as believers, as Christians, we are to be gospel reflections of Jesus Christ. That's how we know our faith is genuine, it's true. It reflects back to the world who Jesus was. Now, James, at the end of chapter one, has just concluded that true faith in Jesus shows itself in a concern for the poor. Now, poor is not the word that he uses at the end of chapter one. He talks about widows and orphans, who by definition in the ancient world were poor. They were most at risk of injustice in the world. They had the least access to any kind of help. Now, as chapter 2 opens, James is going to defend and apply that idea. That, that, that true faith is concerned for the poor. Here's, here's his argument. Faith gives to others what it's received from the Lord. Faith gives to others what it's received from the Lord. I want you to consider this morning what you've received. And then I want you to consider what you're giving to those around you. 
in your giving, does it, does it reveal the, the character of, of faith? Or does it reveal the character of Karen? All right. Faith gives to others what it's received from the Lord. And that means, first, not favoritism. Not favoritism. James is going to make a negative argument, and then in the second half, we're going to see he's going to make a positive argument. So faith gives to others what is received from the Lord. First, not favoritism. Look at verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? We'll stop there. James starts with this strong command, do not show Favoritism. Now, that, that word, favoritism, it only shows up four times in the, uh, the whole New Testament. Uh, three times as a noun, uh, no, four times as a noun, and then once as a verb, and the verb is going to show up again in our passage in verse 9. It's an it's a, it's a interesting word that Christians, the early Christians, seem to have coined it. We don't find this word anywhere else in, in the Greek language. They've, they've coined this phrase, and, and they all seem to know it. James uses it. Paul uses it. It's, it's, a, it's a word that they've coined to, to translate a really common Old Testament phrase or word. The, the phrase in the Old Testament is literally to receive the face. Favoritism is receiving the face. In other words... It's discriminating based on outward appearance. So we see it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, which says, do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Don't receive their faces. Judge your neighbor fairly. Or or Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17, do not show partiality, same word, when deciding a case. Listen to small and great alike, for judgment belongs to God. I could go on and on. There are like tons of examples of this in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is particularly concerned to condemn favoritism or or partiality or, or discrimination because, and this is the way it shows up almost all the time, because it's a, it's a perversion of justice. And as Deuteronomy 1, which I just read, says, God is just. Judgment belongs to the Lord. Now, what's interesting, as, as James picks up this idea, he's not thinking about the courtroom, which is the way the Old Testament's constantly talking about it. He's thinking about this room. You, you see that there in, in verse 2. He, he imagines this situation 
in which two people walk into church at the same time. One, obviously wealthy because of the way he's dressed. The other one, obviously poor. And he says, if you show favor to the rich person, giving them a great seat because of the way they look, while at the same time kind of brushing off the poor, making them stand in the back or sit on the floor next to your feet, he says, at that moment, you have set yourself up as a judge and an evil one at that, making distinctions. You see that there in verse four, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? Making distinctions that are contrary to what he described there at the beginning, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Discrimination, favoritism, doesn't just pervert justice like, it, like the Old Testament is concerned about. James points out that favoritism, discrimination of any kind, perverts the faith. It perverts Christianity itself. Now, James, in our passage here, is using the poor as his example, but, but actually, there in verse 1, that, that word, uh, don't show favoritism, it's actually in the plural, don't show favoritisms. Don't show favoritism of any kind. How do we show favoritism today? How, how do we show partiality today? Well, just like they did back then, right? We show favoritism based on wealth. But there are lots of other ways we do it. Status. We like to be with people of higher status. Maybe education. We, we look down on people with less education than us. Maybe politics. We are partial to those who share our politics and are ready to exclude those who don't. Of course, a big place where we show favoritism in our culture today is what the world calls race, what the Bible calls ethnicity. Partiality, favoritism, discrimination seems to be hardwired into us. Like part of what it, what it means to be fallen, and part of the proof of that is because we can think of so many different ways we do it. We prefer to be with people who are like us. We just do. No, no one has to teach a little child that. They, they figure it out pretty quickly on their own. We curry favor with people who can help us out. And we ignore people who we don't think we can gain any advantage from. I wonder what it would look like for you today to refuse to show that kind of partiality, that kind of favoritism personally. Now, I, I, know, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Michael's telling me that I have to invite soccer fans to my Super Bowl party this afternoon. <laughs> and I have to ignore the fact that I, 
Watching the Super Bowl is more fun when I'm watching it with other people who are like me who also like the NFL. I'm not saying that. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that to reject partiality certainly means a willingness to pursue people who are not like you. It means taking an effort to to welcome others into the church, to, to, to show hospitality towards them. It is really easy to notice somebody new in the church who you at least imagine is a lot like you. And it's very easy to go up and talk to them and welcome them in. It is much harder to do the same thing when you see that new person in the church and you realize that person's not like me. They're older than than I am. They have a different skin color than I do. They they dress different than I do. They're, They're at a different stage of life than I am. No one's setting out to be partial in that moment. It's just this natural thing that we feel. It's easier to move towards this person. It's harder to move towards that person. What would it look like? for you, even today, to work against that natural tendency? What would it look like for you to go out of your way to try to prefer and and even honor people in our own congregation who can't do anything for you? Now, I think this has some implications for our society as well, not just for us in the church. As a society, surely it means seeking justice on behalf of those who've been denied justice historically. It would mean seeking justice for those who have difficulty accessing justice even now. Rather than always and only being concerned for justice for our own tribe, our own group of people. You know, I I think we often think of discrimination, favoritism, as something that's active. But James is showing us right here that actually can be quite passive. You you notice the, the poor person who walks into church isn't excluded. He's not told he can't come in. He's just neglected, relegated to the back. We live in a society that has a history of favoritism, a history of ethnic favoritism that has contributed to ethnic poverty. I think that means, if I'm reading James correctly, that it's not enough for us, even as a society, to stop practicing discrimination though we should. We should not practice discrimination. And thankfully, we live now in a nation of laws where that kind of active discrimination is illegal. But that may not be enough. It's not just that we need to not discriminate. It's that even as a society, certainly in whatever sphere we have any sort of control over, we need to be active in doing the opposite. 
We need to be active in welcoming those that have been excluded historically. We need to be active in including those that historically were excluded. We need to be active in empowering those who historically have been disempowered, those who've been discriminated in the past. If you would like to think more about this, I've recommended this before, I want to recommend it again. There's a fantastic new book out by Matt Martins called Reforming Criminal Justice. Uh, I think we're trying to get it in our bookstall. Maybe we already have it. Uh, it, is, it is superb. It is challenging. It's only looking at one small slice uh, of how historical discrimination has, has affected our society. But I, I, would, I would commend that book to you. I want to be really clear, though. I am not arguing at this moment for one policy over another policy. Christians can disagree about the, the correct policy to pursue in order to redress past wrongs. I'm not arguing for a policy. I'm arguing for a posture, a, a, a willingness to, to not just stop doing the wrong thing, but to lean in towards doing what is right. Christians, this is a gospel issue. Discrimination favoritism perverts the faith. It doesn't just pervert justice. It perverts Christianity. And James actually gives us two reasons for that. You'll see that in verse five. First, showing favoritism is contrary to the way God has acted in redemptive history. Verse five, God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. He's the heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him. I mean, so if, if you know your Bible, just, just cast your mind back on the history of, of redemption as it's recorded for us in the scriptures, right? God chose a barren old couple who were immigrants and foreigners to be the, the start, the beginning of his promise to bless the world. And then he chose their descendants, a slave nation, to be his people at the Exodus. And then as redemptive history moves forward, he chose the youngest and the least impressive shepherd boy to be the greatest king of Israel. And then redemption history continues to move forward. And what does he do? He chooses a poor teenage girl to be the mother of the Messiah. God chooses the poor in the eyes of the world, the, the material poor and the spiritually poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. Now, you might think, oh, so God's just like replacing one kind of favoritism for another. He, he's, he's, he's exercising preference for the poor. And there's a whole line of theology out there that talks about this, the, the God's preference or preferential option for the poor. No, that's, that's not what's going on here. He's not replacing one kind of favoritism with another kind of favoritism. He's making clear that the glory of salvation belongs to him alone. Jesus who was rich, became poor. 
Jesus, who, who did not hold on to equality with God, but made himself nothing, becoming a man, as we're told in Philippians 2. Why did God do this? Why did God choose this nobody couple, Abraham and Sarah? Why, why did he choose Israel or David or Mary or you or me? What was it? Was it because he, he looked at these people and saw something that commended them? Saw something that was really favorable. It's like, oh, God's thinking, yeah, those are the kind of people I want to have as my people. No. No, not at all. Listen, listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Why does God choose whom he chooses? Is it favoritism? No. It's because he loves you and set his heart on you. And in doing that, he makes it plain and clear that the glory is his, not yours, not mine. I mean, just take a moment and think about yourself, Christian. Think about yourself when the gospel came to you. Here's how Paul describes you in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, that is, rich. No, I, I remember when the, when the gospel came to me, I was deep in rebellion, running hard away from the Lord. There was nothing about me that commended me to him. And so it is with you. How, how do we respond to the fact that, that God chose us, not because there was anything commendable about us? How, how, how do we respond to the fact that God is not partial well, here's, here's what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord had, set his, had, yet the Lord had his heart set on your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. If God did not show partiality 
but included you, included me. Shouldn't we reject partiality as well? Well, that's the first reason that we should reject favoritism in our midst because God does not play favorites, but includes people like us. But James offers a second reason favoritism is excluded by the faith, and especially a a favoritism that is toward the rich. And he says, look, this is contrary to your own experience. He points out there in verse 6 that it's the rich that drag you into court. It's, It's the rich who blaspheme the name of the Lord which you bear, this good name that has been placed on you. Verse 7. And so he basically asks this question, how can we dishonor the people that God has honored by honoring the people who dishonor God and who dishonor God's people? He's basically saying, this shouldn't be, and your experience should teach you this. Now, I want to be clear here. There are real distinctions in this world, distinctions that should be recognized and honored. The elderly deserve our honor, our care. Children, because of who they are, deserve special protection. Uh, uh, Elected officials deserve our respect because of the office they hold. But there are so many false distinctions. False distinctions that cause us to pervert the gospel. And I think the motivation, and this is kind of what James is getting at here in verses six and seven, I think the motivation today is the same as it was back then, a desire to curry favor, a desire to curry favor with the world, a desire to get ahead, a desire to be thought well of, a desire to gain something by association. And then with that comes an embarrassment an embarrassment towards our brothers and sisters in the faith who don't share those characteristics that we long for, wealth or status. You know, we don't all suffer from this in the same way. We don't all play favorites the same way. We don't all make the same distinctions Some of us want the favor of the rich and the powerful because it makes us feel rich and powerful. But for others of us, they care less about the rich and powerful. The favor that I want is the favor of my family who don't love Jesus. You can think about it from the opposite side, negatively. Some of us are partial against the wealthy. We just assume right off that they can't be trusted, that, 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 they're, that they're wicked. Some, some of us are partial against Republicans or Democrats. We just assume they can't really be Christians. Some of us are partial against Easterners. I definitely felt that when I moved out here. And then I learned that actually we're really supposed to be partial against Californians. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. But there are those kind of regional partialities, aren't they? 
we just kind of assume badly because of where somebody comes from. For some, ethnic partiality still grips, even when we don't mean it to. You know, if I could tell the story once, I could tell it a a dozen or two dozen times of Asian American members of our church who've encountered a conversation that goes like this. Where are you from? L.A. But where are you really from? Not funny. Because what our Asian American brothers and sisters experience is that it doesn't matter that they're a fourth generation American. They are the perpetual foreigner because of the way they look and are treated as such, always on the outside. For others of us, it's education. Can you you imagine recognizing an elder in this church who never graduated from college? If that's a difficult thing to imagine, then you're dealing with partiality in your heart. I've I've found myself thinking about this a lot this week because when I got here 14 years ago when the church called me, this was a church that actually had a ton of members who worked with their hands. They made things, they built things, they fixed things. That doesn't mean necessarily they were working class. You can actually make a lot of money building things. But, but they were people who worked with their hands. 14 years later, that's less and less the case in this church. And the people who are still in the church who work with their hands may feel lesser less included, less respected. Why has that happened? Well, some of it's because the the character and nature of Portland's changed, but some of it's my fault, right? It's inevitable that a church over time will begin to look like its pastor. And I'm a college-educated, lots-of-degree kind of guy. And I think, therefore, I probably bear responsibility that if the character of our church has changed, perhaps some of it is because I have been thoughtless in this matter. And maybe some of you have too. I was struck by Shai's comment at the Ethnic Unity in the Church conference that he has more in common with a white, homeschooling, homesteading Christian mom in Idaho than he, does with his cul- with, with, than he does with his cousin back in Philadelphia who's not a believer. I know in my head that's true. I believe it's true. I struggle with it. I struggle to feel it, and I struggle to live it out in my own life. And maybe you do too. So I just want to ask you, church, what distinctions do you consciously make in your own mind or maybe you just unconsciously live with that you shouldn't make because of the gospel? And what would it look like to begin to put those distinctions behind you, 
put them to death. Through the gospel, God welcomes rich and poor, strong and weak, Republican and Democrat. Shouldn't we do the same? Well, if it's not favoritism that we should give to others because of the gospel, what is it? What should we give? Well, it's love. And second, we should give love. Look at verse 8. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says right there at the beginning of verse 8, indeed, but you could also translate it however. However, if you fulfill the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, he's making a contrast there with that word, however, or indeed. He's contrasting with dishonoring the poor back in verse 6. So to dishonor the poor is, is to go against everything God has done, but to love your neighbor as yourself, oh, that is to do well, he says. He calls it the royal law because it's particularly associated with King Jesus who declared this one of the two greatest commandments in Matthew chapter 22. You can go back and read those on your own. Jesus said, actually, the entire Old Testament law depends on these two commandments to love the Lord our God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, it's important for us to recognize what love is in the Bible Love is not so much a feeling as it is an action. To, to, to love is to, is to show care. It is to show concern. So to love someone as yourself is to care for them as you care for yourself. On the other hand, showing favoritism isn't just a perversion of the gospel. He says it's a sin there in verse 9. And you're convicted as a transgressor when you do that. Favoritism is a failure to love. It's, it's, a, it's a failure to, to show care for your neighbor. I mean, every parent knows this, right? Who has more than one child. Because they, 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 they will have had this experience where one of their children feels like they're not the favorite that this other child is the favorite. And what are they talking about there? You're, I don't feel loved. This is what partiality is. It is a failure to love. So what does it look like to love your poor neighbor? Well, what does it look like to love your rich neighbor? What does it look like to love the neighbor who doesn't share your politics or your ethnicity? What, what, what does it look like to, to love your neighbor who's at a different stage of life or 
Who isn't interested in any of the things that you're interested in? Well, to answer that question, I, I think you've got to answer the question, well, how do you love yourself? I mean, you may get up in the morning and look at your face in the mirror and not like what you see. You very well may not like the look of your face in the mirror. But I bet you don't punch it as a result. <laughs> no, you look at that ugly mug of yours and you think, all right, what can I do to make it better, <laughs> right? You wash your face, you do all that you can to make it as presentable, as presentable as possible. This is how you love yourself. You take care of yourself. You, you do what you can to, to make yourself as presentable as you can, to, 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 to flourish as much as you can. So it should be with our neighbors, whether they're rich or poor, black, white, Asian, native, educated or uneducated, Democrat or Republican. We want to give ourselves actively to seeing our neighbors flourish. Now, in terms of the poor, of course, like a, a place to start would be giving to the Benevolence Fund, which is a way we collectively care for those in our congregation who don't have enough materially to care for their own needs. But I, I, we can't stop there. Lo loving our neighbor, if it, if it begins and ends with giving to the Benevolence Fund, I don't think we've understood what James is after here. Because it's really interesting. He doesn't talk about money. He talks about poor and rich, but he's not actually talking about money. What does he talk about? He talks about hospitality. He talks about welcoming and inclusion. And, and therefore, I think we've got to think about this carefully. Two things I want to say about how to think about loving our neighbor, whatever kind of neighbor that is. The first is our focus should not be on the difference but the difference is going to help us see clearly what the need is, right? So I want to ask the question, how can I help an older member of the church flourish? Because my answer to that question is going to be different to my answer to the question, how can I help a younger member of the church flourish? I'm going to ask the question, how can I help an Asian-American member feel fully included? And you know, my answer to that might be a little different than my answer to how can I help a third-generation member of Henson feel fully included? The difference isn't the point. The difference is not what we should be focusing on. At the, at the men's uh, event on, on Friday night, My, Michael Caine really helpfully made the point, we ought not focus on the prefixes because the prefixes destroy the unity. How, however, we also don't ignore the prefixes because the prefixes, older member, black member, young member, unmarried member, the prefixes help us understand what the need is so that we can love specifically. I think second then, love acts. Love takes the initiative. It moves toward, not away from the beloved. This is just true of love in general. There, there's nothing passive about love. But, but what makes Christian love worthy of the name and different from every other kind of love is that we love those whom we have no natural reason to love. 
we're willing to cross boundaries to love. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now, what makes our love a gospel-proving love? What makes it clear that it's a gospel-generated love is it's a love that acts and moves across the boundaries that keep worldly people from moving. Just as God crossed every boundary in order to love us. And I think when we do that, what we're going to see is that the, the, the love that in particular is needed in a church like ours is, yes, there's a, a place for benevolence and, and practical help, but so often it's going to be about friendship. It, it's going to be about discipleship, being willing to actually get involved in the messiness of somebody's life who's not like you and helping them grow as a Christian. It's going to look like inclusion, It's going to look like giving honor and respect, maybe to people that we're not used to giving honor and respect to. And I think sometimes it's going to look like what we did earlier in the service. It's going to look like just listening and lamenting with a brother or sister who has experienced the discrimination and the partiality of this world against them and has come to the church and has not found the church to be as different as they hoped it would be. And just being willing to be with them, not make excuses, not defend, but listen and lament with them. James wants us to understand that this is all of us This is why he says it's not just a sin that some people have, have, have committed. No, he, he, he says that, that we're transgressors. You see that there in verse 9. If, however, you show favoritism, and who of us hasn't, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Favoritism isn't just a sin amongst sins. No, favoritism marks you as a sinner. It's, it's a, a status, an identity, a, a transgressor. And, and, and James' point is that, look, the law, every single one of them and all of them together, is an expression of who God is. He says in verse 11, the same God who said don't murder also said don't commit adultery. So to break any law, including the law to love your neighbor as yourself, is not just to break a rule. It's to reject the person who said it. It's to flout the relationship between you and God that is defined by his word. Now, in that sense, God's law isn't so much a legal code as it is a set of marriage vows. I know none of us are Israelites under the Old Testament law, that all of us stand under the moral law of God, and all of us have broken it. All of us have the, the status, the identity as vow breakers. 
unfaithful to the relationship. And we just can't console ourselves that we're mostly faithful. That's like the husband who says, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly faithful. I only have an affair once a decade. No. No, you either are or you're not. It is an on-off switch. We are all unfaithful. Which means a lot of us need to change the way we think about God's law. Perhaps you've, you've reduced the law to a list that you can manage. That's small enough that, okay, yeah, you know you break some of them, but most of them you keep. Perhaps you console yourself that, well, I mean, at least I don't break that law. I mean, that law is a bad one, and I've never broken that one. No, God's law is so much more. God's law is a revelation of his character, and it describes our relationship with him. Friends, sin is so much worse than you think. It's not like a speeding ticket that an officer can excuse as a minor infraction. No, it is very much like adultery. It is like insurrection. It is the breaking and severing of a right relationship that is not easily forgiven or restored. Which is why James goes where he goes. It's why we need the gospel. He ends in verse 13, mercy has triumphed over judgment. All of us have been unfaithful towards God, but not Jesus. Not this one man with more privilege than anybody else who's ever lived. Jesus Christ was faithful. He kept the law. He was faithful in every point. He was faithful for his whole life. He was faithful even unto death. And his faithfulness has triumphed over our unfaithfulness. On the cross, mercy has triumphed over judgment because on the cross, Jesus Christ took on himself our unfaithfulness, all of our transgressions, and suffered what was deserved for that, a, a broken relationship with the Father. The wrath of God poured out on him, and God accepted it. God accepted his sacrifice as a substitute for us, and then God raised Jesus from the dead so that any of us, all of us, all who are unfaithful might put their faith in Jesus, the faithful one, and not just be forgiven, but be given a new identity, a new status, the status of faithful. Friends, this is the mercy of God to us in the gospel, and it is for you if you will but repent and believe in Jesus, putting your faith in him, not in yourself. I'd love to talk to you more about that later, after the service. If you're not a Christian, please come and talk to me about this. Talk to the person that you came with. But understand that God is not asking you to keep all of the law because he's already kept it for you. He is faithful, faithful to obey. 
faithful to forgive. Now, Christian, understand this is who you are. This is who you are now in Christ. This is why James is pressing this on us. You are not a lawbreaker. You are not a vow breaker. You are in Christ a vow keeper, not just not guilty, but but faithful. And so James says, live like it. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Verse 12, he's he's talking about the, the, the word of God that is now written on your heart because of the gospel. That, that allows you now to live as one who's received love and received mercy. Christian, you are faithful, so live as a faithful Christian. You are faithful in Christ, so live as gospel people. I, I think we, we think too little of the gospel because we think too little of our sin. We don't think we've been forgiven all that much. Oh, but we also have low expectations of our life as Christians because we have a low estimation of what the gospel has actually done for us. Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He, he, He loves God. He loves his neighbor as himself. Christian, you have been forgiven much. You've been given a mercy that that sets you free to love without favoritism. You've been given a mercy that allows you to now seek out and show mercy to those who are in need, to to welcome the stranger, to, to honor those whom this world dishonors. You have been given everything you need to include the excluded, to seek justice for the oppressed. This is who you are in Jesus. Is this what your life looks like? Does this describe your Christian life? Or do you look at your life and you really think, you know, I'm more like Karen. Most days, every day, I'm about seeking my own privilege, my own comfort, my own security. Friend, if that's you, even if you call yourself a Christian, James warns us against presumption. He says, judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Those who do not show mercy prove that they've never received mercy. Those who characteristically fail to love like Christ demonstrate that they have never known the love of Christ. Faith, genuine, mature gospel faith gives to others what we've received from the Lord. It can't help it because this is who you are. Not favoritism, but love. Not discrimination, but mercy. Loving as we've been loved. Giving mercy even as we have received it. Christian, you have more privilege than you realize You're an heir of the kingdom of God. You're a child of God. You are faithful in Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do with your privilege today? Let's pray.
Take just a moment and confess your need for God's mercy because of the ways in which you know you have not shown mercy but favoritism instead. Heavenly Father, we all stand this morning convicted by your word. For for, for we know that in ways large and small, in ways obvious and not obvious, we have not loved our neighbor as we ought. We, We are guilty of favoritism, of discrimination, of partiality. And as your children, we know that should not be. Because you did not show favoritism, but instead lavished your love on people like us who did not deserve it, who can give nothing back to you. Lord, we pray that we would be taken afresh by just how much we have been given in the gospel and that that would transform the way we speak and act today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.